Score, the podcast, is presented by Spitfire Audio. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Kenny Holmes and Robert Kraft checking back in with you another week and another big guest. Oh boy, do we have a big guest today. Really excited to talk to Chris Bowers, one of my favorite new composers. He has uh, a big show coming. It actually comes out on Friday. Ava DuVernay's uh, When They See Us on Netflix. And uh, Huge. there's a lot of buzz coming about, yep. about it. She's been talking about it a lot. She's really active on social media. Uh, but yeah, Chris is going to come on. He was also the composer of Green Book. He's worked with some of the biggest hip-hop moguls on the planet. Kanye West, Q-Tip. Yeah. And, uh, Pharrell. He, he, uh, yeah. They, he worked with Pharrell. And, and Kobe Bryant. Oh, that's right. He also scores a, a great series called Dear White People with Justin Simeon directing and writing. And yeah. uh, Chris is really on, on fire. He's blowing up. Um, so we're going to get to him in just a bit. But we have a couple of special guests here as uh, the Blockbuster podcast has oh. now wrapped up. Please welcome back Mash Raider. Mash oh, Raider. And, uh, of course, Peter... Say, say your last name for me. Peter Bavietz. Bavietz. I always just call you Peter. Let's go ahead and give I'm him scared. a... It's good that it's yeah, Peter. Go. Welcome. Thank you. So, Blockbuster, six-part series. It's out completely. It's yeah, bingeable. Yeah, we just wrapped. It's yeah. bingeable. Are you guys, like, taking a breath now? Are you feeling... How are you feeling? Uh, great! It's it was a great uh, run, and for those who who haven't heard it yet, um, I'm sure you've you've been chatting about it. I heard you talking about a couple impressions. Yeah, I actually have our first uh, a first impression of uh, a, a celebrity that you did very early in the process. That yeah, we'll you, play in a little bit. But he, um, Matt, he snuck that up on me. He was like, "Hey, can you do any impressions? Can you do Sylvester Stallone?" And I was like. Yeah, may, maybe a little bit. And he's like, "Send me the read this and send it to me." It Can ended you say up, this phrase? It ended up in the show. The the thing I sent from my iPhone. <laughs> I think he knew that you can do those impressions before you knew because he mentioned that very early on. I've heard me. a couple that Kenny said. I didn't know we could do Sylvester Stallone. Here it is. This is just off my phone, but this is how it was recorded too. So this Ooh. is the version that I think we actually Peter cleaned up. Hey guys, I'm Sylvester Stallone. Reading for the part of Han Solo. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was like That's making breakfast when I did that. Very impressive. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so we put out some uh, little. We we went on social media and asked some of the fans of Blockbuster to ask some questions. Now that the show is over, and most of the questions, there was probably 50 that people said. What's next? What do you guys do? Is there going to be more? Why is this the last episode? So Matt, what uh, what's our, uh, What's on and I, the horizon I wish our, here? it would have been more more appropriate if we had our composers joining us and they're on opposite ends of the country uh, so it's a little bit more difficult to uh, to do that um, but uh, but yeah it was a great run um, people really liked the music which was really cool people um, really liked the sound design um, that uh, that Peter just did a, an amazing job on and um, and people seem to actually, you know what it was? It, it was the actors that did the best. It, the actors did did, <laughs> did pretty well. Um, but I was surprised, I guess, mm -hmm. that people are saying that they cried. There was a thought, lot of those I saw. Yeah, for for a couple moments, and I they they were moments that I thought were were 
sentimental when we were putting them together, right. but um, but that was kind of uh, kind of cool that we're but making it, people cry. You know, I was there was a Facebook chat with uh, one of our friends who was recommending it to someone. Turns out he actually was the roommate of our lead actor, uh, and oh, right. he didn't even recognize him or something like that. And and we were talking about it, and I said, you know what? Quoting the podcast, a great story is a great story. And you did it justice with the writing and the actors did it justice with the everything. But it just boiled down to the very basic principle of it really was about the story itself that we were making. And that was it. Everything else kind of came out natural. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone everyone did it fantastic. I see it from the other view, which is, yes, the story is interesting. That's why yeah. we did it. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but the, all the creative stuff that went into it... Um, Peter and the team just knocked it out of the park. I'm curious because a lot of people have said like, oh, this reminds me of listening to radio serials with my dad. But you guys are, aren't probably even old enough. I know I'm not old enough and I'm older than you, Matt, uh, to, to have even listened to a radio serial. So like, did you go into old radio serials and listen to some of that stuff to, to get a vibe of that? Or was this just... No, I think we just kind of maybe inadvertently channeled some of that because really we were saying let's make a movie and let's let's do it and we just won't shoot it. We'll just try to tell the story without without uh, any picture, yeah. um, and make something that that feels immersive enough so that you kind of forget that you're not seeing anything. Um, and I, I don't know. I guess we all it's like reading a reading a book where you kind of start to form the pictures in your head. And even now, I would swear that there are pictures for some of the scenes that we put together. You know, I I, oh, yeah. I visualize it. Um, so I, I think that's cool that maybe we we tapped into some of the same thing. I I completely agree. Every time, every episode, I envisioned it as a movie. It's, it's almost like if it were to become a movie, it's it's already storyboarded in my yeah. head at least. Um, is there plans for that? I know some people have asked. Uh, yes. <laughs> No, there are, there's nothing concrete yet, but um, but that is something that uh, has come up a couple times. We're maybe exploring a little bit, and uh, I think it'd be really cool if that uh, something like that came together. Another question people sent in was: Have Stephen, George, and or John Williams heard it that you're aware of? I don't think I've seen anything. But... I don't know. I don't know that they would tell us if they <laughs> if they had. I, I we'd like to think that they have and that they uh they they love it. We've yeah. I know there've been a number of directors on social media and some producers and other people that have uh that have tweeted us um and uh and mentioned it which is pretty cool. So uh, we know that some people are hearing about it um but uh but I don't know about George and and Stephen and John just yet. Well, we just hope they're happy with the way we presented it. We just wanted to give justice to the achievement that they made. And I'm wondering if you're going to get a tweet at some point from either Spielberg or Lucas saying, I'd like to direct the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Can I direct the movie about myself? Would it, would it be them, though? I don't think they even have social media. They're kind of above above social mm -hmm. media. I don't think it would be them. Maybe they produce yeah. and hire a young, cool director. Like Ron Howard. Like Mash Raider. <laughs> Mash Raider. Mash. Or, or Mash Raider. You Mash know, Raider. Same, same, same level. <laughs> uh, Peter, there was a question asking about the process. What was mm -hmm. your favorite part of sound design um, that stuck out to you? Like, I can't wait for people to hear this one part. There's there, a few of them. Th there were a couple that I remember every time I would finish, um, I would 
get in my car and drive somewhere and kind of listen to that sequence in the car. Just upload it to Dropbox and play it on my phone and the car speakers. Uh, I mean, definitely the phone call. Definitely the, the phone call when they're recording the score in London. No spoilers Def- if you haven't listened yet. But no. episode five. Yeah, but, don't yeah. tell us what happened with Star Wars. Jaws. <laughs> was it a success? <laughs> no, they, there, they, there were, they ended up making the music. <laughs> there were a bunch of montages that, that mm-hmm. were like, okay, is this working story wise? And the the car test was a big one. Just figuring oh, out yeah. how this will play because a lot of people listen to podcasts in their in their car, and you can listen to it, you know, playing it on your iPhone speaker, but it's not the same as headphones, and it's not yeah. the same as your car. And the car is a good kind of simulates maybe, uh, you know, for most people, what might be the best place to hear something like this. We'd love for people to listen to it on the best possible speakers or headphones or whatever. But the reality is a lot of us, even me, listen to podcasts in the car while we drive to work Mm -hmm. or to meetings or whatever. I just realized that we didn't give the proper introduction of Blockbuster. In case this is the first episode you've ever listened to of Score the Podcast and you have no idea what we're talking about. Blockbuster was created by Matt Schrader and sound designed by Peter Bavietz, and mm-hmm. it is a six-part biopic-style podcast about Spielberg, Lucas, and John Williams creating Jaws and Star Wars and everything. Um, did Matt, what was your favorite part about the writing? That was another question. Like, what um, did you have a favorite moment that you pieced together? Well, I know it, it was based off of fact, but yeah, I mean the 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 process of the story here was. Um, was it was several levels of this there's obviously there's the research that goes into this we wanted to be able to say everything is true mm-hmm. and and go in saying we aren't making up a story about you know whatever somebody being inspired by you know the ham sandwich that they were eating mm-hmm. and oh this must be a perfect whatever you know like we don't need to invent that this has been documented in a number of places um and we had to really dig for for some of those things to to pull out where you know the origin of certain things came from, but we wanted it to be true. Then we uh, basically created a timeline of of where all these things fell into the story um, in a kind of chronological way. And the last part is is kind of the creative side of this, which is we weren't just saying here's a series of things that happened when they were making something. You know, that's kind of like the documentary approach is, you know where it ends up, they made it. And then <laughs> here's, you know, step A, B, mm-hmm, C, mm-hmm. D, e, you know, and it's just a linear thing. We we wanted there to be an arc in this. And so the the challenge was in trying to figure out where things kind of the big ideas started to happen and then where these kind of key relationships form and where these friendships form um and then there's this dark period you know it's like a movie where there's always that really dark period um usually two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way into the movie um and that was here for uh this for for at least star was also jaws Mm -hmm. um and uh and then kind of this this resolving final act that sets things up for the next couple decades of film um and the way that that uh that Stephen and George and John will all work together after that. Um, so that was the part that kind of we needed to figure out how best to tell, you know, where things began and where things ended. So it wasn't just about how they made a movie. This was about a friendship that created the future. And Peter, you're a sound designer for picture yes. for films. Did you take a different approach on this? Was it a similar approach? Just, mm-hmm. I mean, you're still creating these 
the the sound design of yeah. what is a picture in our mind, but is there a different approach you have to take when there's no visuals? I think first of all, the I love documentaries uh, and you know score. That was one of my favorite ones that I oh, got to work on. Mine too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, me too. Um, Peter actually designed the sound for score and and mixed it. Yeah, with uh, Carrie Barber. Yeah, and but continue. Well, yeah, and and so documentaries are incredible because we know that we're telling true stories, and somewhere there we get to inject ourselves as creatives. And so the question is, where are we adding to that story? Mm. So in 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 a film, it's one thing, and in a podcast, because it was like everything was resting on the shoulders of sound and music. Mm. There was no other platform that we would communicate with the audience we knew that whatever way we're going to inject ourselves we have to be very cautious because we don't want to change the way people perceive everything um i just love that it was a big shout shout out to the past almost because it was like let's go back in time how did that world sound let's romanticize it i mean everything in the work of george lucas steven spielberg is a lot about just making uh, emoting a warm feeling about something whatever it is the et maybe mm-hmm. maybe not jaws but um yeah it was something about just making the audience feel 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 a warmth to that past to that story so you just um, reminded me that um i wonder and i don't want to be giving away great ideas to all our listeners without having a conversation but it'd be interesting what you're describing First of all, it sounds like you're almost the cinematographer of a podcast. Mm-hmm. You are literally yeah. art directing mm-hmm. and filming it mm-hmm. in your brain, um, audio-wise. But it's a shout-out to somebody that deserves more recognition than they've gotten, which is uh, the gentleman Walter Murch, mm. who's the great, great sound designer of most notably Apocalypse Now. But he really leveled this whole playing field up about four notches that you're describing and i would if i can i'm gonna make a shout out to anyone (laughs) who who's interested in understanding a bit more about what sound does for film there's a terrific movie that just premiered in Cannes. it's Mm -hmm. called making waves Hmm. and it's uh directed by a professor of mine back from the days that i studied at usc mitch costin and a and a wonderful team of professionals um that have really made an incredible movie about what sound is in film and it just premiered in is Cannes. it a doc or a it's feature? a documentary yeah. it just premiered in Cannes, so shortly we're hoping we're gonna see it hold on we have a we're we have some food on the grill here <laughs> <laughs> that's so nice and that's a Do we need to say? Do we need to say Alexa stop? (laughs) That worked. Um, No, it didn't work. Alexa, (laughs) stop. I'd like to ask all our listeners what pitch that is. Mm. Oh my goodness! We have a guest on the show. This show is so live. You guys are just. This is a Memorial Day barbecue situation going on here. And uh, brought to you by Traeger Grills. By the way, my grill that nice. I won that we talked about in the first episode, is uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable. But we digress. I'm so thankful that you're going to give it to me. Make it, oh, I was thinking. <laughs> that was a, a generous offer. Did he Thanks, tell man. you that too? Because he said to me, you know, I'd really love to show my appreciation. Making waves. Yeah. Fascinating. Will come to the U.S. soon? I yeah. want to watch or, it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. I'd love to see so that. So it's basically like 
how score approaches yes. film music, but it's about sound design. And exactly. That's oh, can't wait. And, and, you, and you have interviews uh, with all the big guys from Ben Burtz and uh, Spielberg, Lucas's. I mean, everyone. So That's it's, so great. It's definitely yeah. The cast movie, is great. Movie As a sound with, designer, were, did you leave thinking like, I already knew all this or did you learn some stuff? I don't think I know anything yet. Oh, that's so nice. Beginner's mind, that's oh, called. You remind he's me. He's so humble. I, I, <laughs> I always was fascinated by sound designers who would say they had spent the weekend. I used to hear things like this. They spent the weekend in the desert firing guns and recording them to try and get the right sound of a particular period's rifle. Oh, uh. we were recording Winds last weekend for a movie. So winds. Winds. So winds. people had to break As winds in the wind. near you? <laughs> no, like it was that. What is happening? <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Robert. Right. Uh, well, thank you guys for coming on and talking about Blockbuster. If you haven't listened of yet, course. it's now bingeable. The episodes are like 20 minutes long, so you can knock it out in a car ride home. If you're in L.A., probably a drive to work, if you know what I'm talking about. And it's free and it's ad-free. And Oh, it is ad-free, which, mm-hmm. is, which is interesting. Um, my least a favorite, new model. My least favorite part about story podcasts that are telling a story is that the it gets interruption. broken up and just ruins it. It's like if you went to watch Avengers and right in the middle of the movie they were like, hey, Casper Mattress. Like It doesn't make any <laughs> sense to break it up like that. Um, so it's a really unique model and uh, it was all done ad-free, but they're definitely looking to repay those costs. So if you want to make a donation, if you like oh, yeah. what you heard. You, we will accept all of your voluntary donations. Absolutely. <laughs> so every uh, little bit helps. And they can go to? Getblockbuster.com. Getblockbuster.com. Robert, let's jump into a couple of uh, headlines. I thought you were going to at least also say there's a T-shirt because I, I have my Blockbuster That's T-shirt. That's right. I've seen you in the T-shirt. So I was going to say if you want to not only subscribe, you can wear your Blockbuster you can wear your Blockbuster T-shirt while listening to Blockbuster. Yeah, I just want to say. They're, they're, the hoodies it. are amazing. Send us a send us a photo and we'll retweet it. Also. Nice, Robert they're has more T-shirts than anyone and never wears T-shirts. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> I did see the Blockbuster T-shirt though. I got Blockbuster. I wore that a score T-shirt. He put it on for a photo and then hung yes. it back up and went polo and sweater. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the uh, you know. But there's always kind of you never know. There might be a kind of do we have Blockbuster mugs? Uh, we, I think it's only one, but yes. Merch. They have one. You can borrow it. Because I love the, the score mug. I have four of them. <laughs> mm. This uh, is really important. We get to the real yeah. meat of the issues here on this show, don't That's we? That's a barbecue pun. Okay. Uh, this weekend, I did <laughs> nice. go see Aladdin. I'm sorry for oh, yeah? you. Or you I liked went, it. I went with Matt. It was a little. We went on a little double date <laughs> That's with the queen. ladies. Very nice. Um, I think Matt and I might have different takes on Aladdin. It was fine for what it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's generous. Um, it was I, fine. What, here, what look, did you think of uh, look, A Whole New World? That's that beautiful musical thing right in the middle of I it. I had to pee, all right? <laughs> I didn't see that part. <laughs> did you bring that little thing that we had for uh, Avengers where told you where no, in they, the movie? No, nobody put out the no. where to go to the bathroom for Aladdin <laughs> article. Um, I'll, I'll just say this. If you liked the the animated version, which it's my favorite Disney movie, don't like be afraid not to not go see it. Don't be afraid to see it, I should say. Because it don't compare it to the animated version, I guess is what I'm trying it's to say. It's its own thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really fun. My biggest fear was 
Will Smith trying to be Robin Williams, and it ended up being my favorite part of it. Um, so I think he did a really good job. I also wasn't sure how they were going to do the visual effects, and it, it completely exceeded my expectations. And they hid all of that in the trailer, so I wasn't sure if they were going to be able to pull some of that off. But they're definitely going to be uh, contending for animated visual effects or whatever you call that with the everything that the genie was doing i thought it was really good yeah just for um, visually it was pretty it was a pretty entertaining movie there are things that could have been done better a lot of the songs were poorly lip-synced at times and i'm sure that just is impossible to do when you're doing action scenes and stuff like not that. impossible to do if you have <laughs> professionals Thank if you. you have time yes, i was gonna say impossible to do with, only with a deadline maybe i don't know i i don't know it's about a question you. of want Yes, it's a question of uh, something that has eternally bothered me and is actually appropriate to the episode coming up because Chris Bowers had to, it's not lip sync, it's what we like to call play sync, Mahershala Ali yeah. playing the piano as Don Shirley. We hopefully will find out from Chris Bowers. Did Mahershala Ali yeah. learn to play I'm, I'm curious that amazingly? Well, I know that he taught him. He taught him he, piano. He's he, like a, like a piano teacher. Literally taught him how to play. So and we'll for someone that. who, of course, watches that in the film very carefully, I was stunned by how incredible that aspect of the film was, and it improved the film uh, exponentially for me to see how much care they took in having the fingers match the playing. Definitely. And maybe we'll learn how they achieved that. So o overall, Aladdin. It's a kids movie, George. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> right. Like I, Brian De probably, says. yeah. Right. I, I, it's a kids movie. I mean, we we did go and see it. So But I, I think feel... it, there's a little nostalgia thing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, it is. It's what, it's entertaining. What's coming out this weekend, Robert? We have a huge weekend. I we can officially say that summer starts this weekend. It's always sort of being backed up by the movie studios cuz they start it earlier and earlier every year, but I think Dropping Godzilla is going to say, we're here. And I think Godzilla is going to be a big, huge vacuum in the marketplace for all those ticket buyers' dollars. But uh, it has some competition. First of all, shout out to Godzilla and our favorite score by Bear McCreary, who kicked off this season of yeah. Score the Podcast and is going to get... The soundtrack's out, too. It's rocking. It's All good. All due accolades for the work he did on that. Um, it's going to have some interesting competition from another audience segment in Rocketman. So I don't know if people will see both, but it might be Godzilla fans are dividing the, into one line at the box office and going to Godzilla, and then a lot of Elton John fans and biopic fans and music fans going to Rocketman. Peter, what do you think about uh, these biopic music movies do you think they should have original score do you like the way they're like the way bohemian rhapsody didn't have an original score bohemian rhapsody was amazing <laughs> <laughs> moving it, on i mean <laughs> it's, it's 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 tough right because you're expecting that all we're going to hear is that original content that material so whatever you're going to create it's going to be very hard to make it stick to that story so yeah, I'm really. I, I was just googling. I'm really excited about Godzilla. Yeah, <laughs> the, the trailer with Claire de Lune, full orchestral for right. me. I was like, <gasps> a lot of people are. I have a uh, 
a friend who also happens to be my youngest son who bought tickets two weeks ago. You know, <laughs> Thursday night, like 11 p.m., Godzilla, he can't wait to go. There's a couple others in the marketplace that could be interesting. There's a movie called Ma, mm-hmm. which is a Blumhouse special, which is going to be a big you know, horror you know, be careful who you ask to buy you alcohol because they might take you home and be weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's the story of Ma, right? Doesn't doesn't pretty she much say you can use my basement? Um, there's as we said, there's some TV coming up that could be interesting. Certainly, at Ava DuVernay's um, show, and also a new TV series coming up called Good Omens with Michael Sheen and David Tennant, which is scored mm. by our. Close personal friend David Arnold, who's done a number of James Bond movies. Usually me. Yes. And uh, was in our movie s- score. He, uh, You'll talks- know him from his famous quote, usually me. Right. He talks about the ghosts in uh, Air Lindhurst. So a lot to see. A lot. And there's another show Matt told me about, and uh, I went and watched Catch-22, which is... Oh, yeah. Is, I've is only now- watched one episode, but it's, it's really really great yeah it's really well done based on the 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 joseph heller uh book of course uh classic story and so uh, much to see it's it's really uh really well done and oh good and scored by the gregson williams Mm -hmm. which ones the bros they work together. They work together. together. See, you learn something on on oh. our my own podcast. You get to I I get to learn things about scoring movies. That's very nice. I didn't realize <laughs> that they um, work together. Yeah. So a uh, ch- lot to look at, lot to look for, a lot to check out, and uh, we want to thank Peter and Matt for joining us. Make sure to listen to Blockbuster. Yeah. And. Uh, Tweet Thanks them. for having us. Tweet them. Thank you, guys. Instagram them. Let them know what you think. Uh, at Blockbuster underscore pod on Twitter. Blockbuster pod on everything else. And coming up, we the have meat, a the steak. really great young composer who you're going to hear a lot about, Chris Bowers. Yep, stick around. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. What about strange lands and an escape from the everyday? It's brilliant, George. Before anyone knew them by name. Who's a good boy, Indiana? Let me explain. George, that's our money. Blockbuster. Following the spectacular failures. Sir, Sir, are you all right? And the unexpected triumphs. Can you believe it? I told you, George. I told you. A six-part immersive audio series. Blockbuster. Experience the entire six-part series ad-free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms. Hi, this is Justin Hurwitz. You're listening to Score the Podcast. Now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast. We are inside Heroes and Misfits Studios. Love that name. Yeah, I think we're accompanied by a couple Heroes and Misfits today, too. Uh, I'm not sure. I might be a misfit. By the end of the podcast, it will be clear which (laughs) and who is which one. We are joined today by Emmy Award-winning composer Chris Bowers. You know his work from Dear White People, Monsters and Men, and of course the Oscar-winning Best Picture Film Green Book. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you. So excited to be here with Chris, somebody I've actually wanted to talk to and and meet. Uh, so excited about the career that we are seeing unfold in real time in front of us, which is this kind of incredible synthesis of someone who has certainly has presence in both the film scoring world, of course, but also has worked on records with Kanye and Q-Tip 
and has performed. Um, really an incredible hat trick right there of uh, a musician. Chris, I know that you have a wonderful story of going to Juilliard, which, oh, by the way, you know, only <laughs> the top of the top, and also winning a contest I, I realize that I've been a huge fan of for years, which is the Thelonious Monk competition. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the Monk competition. I always look at the winner. I guess I realized reading some of your backstory that 2011 yeah that yeah, was your year as, and so for for our listeners can you explain what the yeah, Thelonious please. Monk Award is yeah uh so the Monk Institute started I guess now almost 30 years ago or a little over 30 years ago yeah. and um it started as a just a piano competition where every year they invite people from all over the world you just have to be 30 or under to apply and they select I think 12 semi-finalists to come and then it's a weekend where they have the semi-finalists perform then they select the three finalists, and then that next day the three finalists perform, and then they select the order of the winners for a second and third. And um, now every year it switches instruments. And so there are people like uh, Jason or uh, Joshua Redman won one year, or yeah. uh, uh, Ambrose Akinmuser, who's an incredible trumpet player, won a few years ago. And um, they just had it for piano again just uh, last year. That's right. Yeah. Um, and when you win, you get a cash prize, but also a um, uh, a record deal with Concord Records. Wow. Yeah. You probably get a lot of clout, too, in the in the industry right out of the gate, I would imagine. Yeah, especially because it's, um, it's dictated or started, I guess, a lot of careers in the jazz space. There are a lot of people that uh, pay attention to that competition. And, and that's actually how I met Marcus Miller. They, um, they were oh, looking, I didn't know. Yeah, they were looking for a pianist for his next tour and his next album. And uh, and they were just like, oh, who won the Monk competition this year? And it just happened to be me that year. Yeah, That's can we, fantastic. Can we go back to just growing up? You're, you're from Mid-City? Yeah, yeah, from L.A. Yeah. Um, so where did, where did music start for you? Is it a family connection or did you find it yourself? Uh, it was my parents. They decided before I was born that I want. They wanted me to play piano for some strange reason. They're not musicians at all, and uh, they're like the opposite of most parents. They There's really, like a grand piano in your crib in your nursery, or pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> they, they they used to find piano sampler CDs. They would put on my mom's stomach to play for me and things like that. And they bought me a keyboard when I was really young. They didn't buy me my first piano, I think, until my, my grandmother actually bought it for me when I was like uh, ten or eleven. Mm -hmm. uh, but up until then, I was just practicing on a piano or a keyboard. Yeah. Was it a fun process or was it a lot of pressure? You know, it's funny. It was. It felt fun at the time. It's definitely something that, as I look back, I realize how much pressure there was, and I just never really like felt it. I guess um, it's funny. I was talking to my parents about how my dad, from the time I was like six years old, would would find somebody to compare me to and tell me why I wasn't as good as them and why I needed to like, work hard. And so from from a very early age, my parents, especially my dad, was pretty um, tough on me. And I think I just, just, it was just normal. You know, he sat behind me every single day when I practiced from the time I was six years old until we got into a fight about it when I was like 14 or 15. And he's not a musician. He used to be a drummer in high school, but that's kind of the extent of his musical knowledge. And um, But that being said, they did an incredible job of learning with me. Like my dad didn't really listen to jazz until I started playing jazz, but now he's more of a jazz aficionado than I am sometimes because of how much he listens to it, how much he started studying it. They used to talk to my teachers after every lesson and ask what I should be working on. And so they definitely... Um, uh, applied pressure, but but did it in a way that made me feel feel more encouraged than um, than uh, I guess stifled. Was there was there a sense that you knew you were great, like not not to you know in a humble way, but like did you know like 
wow, I'm I'm pretty good at this at, at a certain point. Not until like it's I don't know. I, I think I had moments of like a feeling that that kind of helped me keep going. But then that moment was quickly. Um, you know, shuddered by finding somebody else that was that was better than me. You know, I, I went to middle school, and I was one. Of, I was by far the best musician in my middle school because not that many people played music there, and so I felt special. And I like used to play songs for girls and like play at the talent show and like all that kind of stuff. And it was I went to a very normal middle school, hmm. and so it was like what made me feel normal in that space because I was definitely just a quiet music nerd. Um, but then I was also going to a school called Colburn at the same time. Yeah. And there was a pianist named Victor Gould, who was a great friend of mine that I was all, I always felt was so much better than me from the, from that whole, um, during that whole time period. And then I went to high school and then immediately was put into a, an environment full of students and, and other people that were my age, but had been serious about music and jazz music specifically since they were, you know, five, six years old. And so then I felt even further behind when I got there. And so I think, I did have moments of feeling like, oh yeah, I'm pretty good about at this, and people were like responding to me, and then I would meet somebody else that was much further along, and I'd be like, oh, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I have a lot. It's of work so to do. beautiful and so humble to have you feel that and kind of fall back and then leap ahead. I mean, there must have been a minute for either your colleagues or your dad where you could say, you know, I'm doing this thing for Kanye West. I mean, there must have been, or you're with Q-Tip. I mean, there was a whole period where you were being brought in on those dates. Was it through yeah. Q-Tip? Yeah, through Q-Tip. Yeah, I was I was kind of um, uh, playing like shows with him and, and things like that, but he has just a Rolodex of musicians that he would call in for sessions whenever he needed somebody. And, and it's almost like Q-Tip's studio is is a mecca in a sense where every musician, it seemed, that, that came through New York would stop by Q-Tip's house. Like, we would... If ever Q-Tip was like, I need you to come over today, I would drop whatever I was doing mm-hmm. because there were times where I would show up and it was Buster Rhymes is here, or Mary J. Blige is here, or like, yeah. you know, Pharrell and Kanye are here. And so, um, yeah, it just became a thing where I would just go and play on stuff and I'd sit with him for a day and play on a bunch of records and eventually some they would end on end up on some things. I'm on like the, the very last Tribe Call Quest album because of those sessions, which That's is That's incredible. Wild. Yeah. And Q-Tip is acknowledged to be... Th- among the great producers in in that world, and so being called by him, what a compliment! Yeah, You're being definitely. kind of knighted in a way. Yeah, hundred percent. His knowledge of 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 music and and music history, and and even just um, his musicality himself, like the fact that he almost like has incredible relative pitch. He plays a bit of piano. He plays bass. He he. The first time I met him, he had a um, that Mark Levine jazz piano book, like huh. sitting up on his piano. Amazing. It shows, shows how much he's uh, a real student. It's interesting. It's like Monk. People wondered about did Monk really understand music because of the way the way he played. And there's a great story of someone going to Monk's house to interview him, and there was Chopin mm-hmm. on the piano. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's like, wow, what are you doing with that? He said, I'm I'm just learning it. You know, I'm learning going through it. And yeah. wow, Thelonious Monk plays Chopin. You also reminded me of one other thing which Quincy Jones used to say, which is I asked him, How do you become a great producer? I was working on something. And Q said, You know how you become a great producer? You get a great Rolodex. Huh. And I didn't understand it for years, but he said, If you need a bass part on your record, you don't learn how to play bass. You call Marcus Miller. You call Nathan East. You call Abel yeah. Boreal. You just call, and they make your record sound great. It's a great lesson, and Q-Tip clearly showed it, which is I don't have to learn how to play amazing piano. Yeah. 
I call Chris Bowers, and I'm done. I was good. (laughs) Tell me, it's very curious, because you could have ended up, it would not have been surprising to anybody, hey, Chris Bowers, isn't he the the dude who makes all those hip-hop records and plays synth on hip-hop records? He's like that guy. Somehow, you migrated into becoming one of the brightest lights of film scoring in this moment. What was the, was there, was it simultaneous? Were you film scoring and making records at the same time, pop music and film music? Or was there a, I got a call this morning and said, could you score a film? It was, it was pretty simultaneous. I mean, I think it's mainly because it's something that I've wanted to do since I was like 11 years old. Like I told my parents a very specific plan. My parents make me, or made me, I mean, they still try to make me, but they, they made me come up with plans for, um, for my future and things that I wanted to do. And they really applied that pressure pretty early. Like my parents, my freshman year of high school were like, where are you going to college? What are you going to major in? Like, what are you like trying to do? And like um, backup plans in uh, a sense, or all music related. Most of it was music related. I think that for them, they at that time were still a little bit nervous about me pursuing a career in music. I think they still felt like it was a thing that I should focus on, but for a long time, it was also the thing that they thought could get me into a good school, and then mm-hmm. I could just study something else as a backup. Huh. And then when I started looking at schools, I by the time I got to that point, I was just very um, uh, vehement about the fact that I didn't care about anything else besides music, and I didn't want to go to a regular school. Like I applied to USC because my parents made me. I didn't really want to go there because I didn't want to have to study anything else besides music, and I knew mm-hmm. that if I went to conservatory, I would only be studying music. At Juilliard, we had one liberal arts course a year and and uh that was like you know heaven for me at the time like my my senior year of high school i arranged my i had finished all the required things to get into uh especially a conservatory and so at that point i was like why am i going to waste my time taking like extra academic classes even though i wish i had taken other academic classes (laughs) but at the time i arranged it so that i i had um, out of my six period schedule, four of those periods I had practice periods. So I would have like wow. an academic class in the morning, two practice periods, lunch, and then arts classes. And so every day I was practicing like you know five hours a day at school, and then would go home and practice more. Um, so I think yeah, I was I was pretty driven to to not have a backup plan per se. But um, but my parents, going back to the film scoring thing, they had me had me figure out exactly what I wanted to do and so I told them pretty early on I wanted to go to a conservatory I wanted to then tour with other artists that I admired then tour with my band and then transition into film scoring at some point and um check check <laughs> check, check. Yeah. I'm scared to ask what's next I mean astronaut or <laughs> deep sea yeah. diver <laughs> yeah Where, how did you end up in the room with with Kanye and Jay-Z on this Watch the Throne album yeah well one thing Jay-Z wasn't actually there it was just me Q-Tip Kanye and um, and Pharrell actually was there and um, that was just because I was doing these sessions with Q-Tip and we did a show that Kanye was a special guest on and, and um, they just needed uh, somebody to play some keyboard stuff on to fix some things on watch the throne and so because i had had that relationship with Q-Tip at the time he asked me to come in and and play on some stuff and so it was one of those like happy accidents to to just be in the space and um and to end up on such a a pretty huge album what did you what you learn in that room i mean there's a lot of big name producers that are you know running this hip-hop industry and uh, you're sitting in the room with these guys. Did, did you take anything away from being in that room? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the biggest thing was 
knowing how much or seeing how much they knew about music and and uh the history of it i think that like mm. for me i had always um you know there are things that i just loved because i loved them but but i didn't really study things in the way that maybe i felt i should as i got older because i think i I, uh, when I was younger, I was like, oh, I'm pretty good at this and just kind of like found my way, but I didn't really obsess over things. I didn't obsess over records or obsess over like the details of records until much, much later. And, um, being with those guys and hearing about like them talk about Chicago house music in the eighties and like all these artists that they knew and like records that they knew. And there's all this obscure stuff or Q-tip talking about random jazz artists that I had never heard of from the seventies and eighties. And, and it just really showed that these guys, all they did for, and all they do, but definitely for a period of their life was just look at albums and just like study that stuff. And so mm. being around that was pretty incredible. And, um, and also just seeing how much they were not satisfied were with where they were. I mean, you know, you're sitting there talking to three of the guys who were at the top of you know the music industry in general but definitely hip-hop and 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 um they all were talking about what can we do to be different like kanye was talking about the beatles concert where they played on the roofs in in new york city and he was like what's the 2000 at that time i guess like 2011 version of that like what are we going to do with my album to like to make it feel like that event that happened and he was like trying to brainstorm things like that which was just interesting to see um yeah, how much he was trying to push himself even at that point when he was like, at that point, definitely the biggest hip-hop artist out there. I absolutely love both things you said. I mean, I think it's, as an artist, to hear that, first of all, the education of the artist is paramount. Mm -hmm. I mean, Monk learning Chopin, mm -hmm. it's not to learn Chopin. It's, I want to know more about music. I want to know more about music. To You know, Pharrell looking at the Let It Be sessions on the roof and the movie and how does that influence me, but also what you said about they weren't satisfied where they are because yeah. we all know to be truly creative, you can never rest. Never and, satisfied. And I, yeah. I don't think creative people understand the idea of rest. You're always getting up in the morning saying, this could be better, this could be different, what could I do, what could satisfy the itch that I have? And I think that's amazing to be reminded that the greatest mm. of the greats have that and aren't at a point where they say i'm at the top of the mountain you know i think i'm just gonna chill now well, i yeah, think that's exactly. why they created a deadline because when you're creative if you don't have a deadline you i mean you're just constantly changing and changing and changing so you yeah, you, you almost <laughs> you need a stopping point because never well, never satisfied actually the deadline is one of the key features between pop music and film music hmm. because i would work with certainly with rock stars who were asked to score films when I was at Fox, people would say, hey, maybe Tom Petty could score this movie. Or maybe we'll get the guy from REM to write a score for us. And the answers were always, yeah, that sounds cool. By the way, I'm about to go on tour, so when are you guys thinking about doing this score? And I'd <laughs> yeah. say, when are we thinking about doing this score? you got to start in eight weeks and the movie's coming out and look there are bus shelters that have big posters on them with the movie already <laughs> and uh they'd say oh okay cool but then it would get closer to the date and they'd still be i don't know man i'm, I'm kind of we're in rehearsals <laughs> and it became really difficult to marry those two worlds because a record you can put a record out whenever and yeah. now of course, even more. You can drop a single, stream it for a couple of weeks, drop the next single, be Ariana Grande, and have different tracks come out at different staggered times. Yeah. Point a, that film, a film score, 
Last time I checked, if you get hired by Justin Simeon or Peter Farrelly to score the film, they don't say, hey, Chris, what schedule are you thinking about for your score? Yeah, can you squeeze this in after yeah, man. vacation? And, and yeah. if you have a chance, you wouldn't mind like doing the dates around this time. But if that doesn't work for you... But I never really heard the transition. We, we ended up in the Watch the Throne conversation. Yeah. But did someone call you and say, would you score a film? Because you had a whole plan. Yeah. It's just the question is, how are you going to get to the next step? Yeah, exactly. So, so when, I was, um, when I was there, the, um, uh, when I was at Juilliard, there was a woman that was my manager for about a month. I actually met her because of Aretha Franklin at the, um, at the Monk competition, heard me there and, and um, asked for my information. And she and I developed a relationship actually after that competition. But one of the first questions I asked her, I was like, I mean, I have this record deal now and I have to consider being a band leader and going on tour. And I think I need a, a manager. And so this woman named Tracy Jordan, who was her, uh, her uh, publicist at the time and whose mother actually is Sheila Jordan, who's an incredible Amazing. jazz, jazz vocalist. Yes. Um, she, she was like, yeah, why don't you call her? And so she was my manager for literally like six months, but she knew a director of a, um, a documentary about Elaine Stritch. And mm. that was like the first Wonderful. project that I got. That's amazing. Yeah. I know that Elaine Stritch thing. It's, it's about her in company or in, it's a, it's a, it's about her last, her last, her, like uh, one woman show that she was that's doing. That's just stunning yeah. that, that that all comes around. And so they asked you to score some of it. Yeah. To score the whole thing. Score. And, and, and for that one, they wanted specifically a jazz sound. And so I think it worked that I just won this competition. They, they came to my Juilliard senior recital to like hear some of my music be performed. And, yeah. and so at that point they were just excited about that. And then, um, and then after that, I scored another documentary that that same director produced. But then after a while, I didn't really do anything for a couple of years. And mm. it wasn't until a friend of mine who was a friend of mine from like a, a high school all-star jazz band was happened to be producing the documentary about Kobe Bryant for Showtime. Oh, yeah. And the Gotham Chopra's. Exactly. Film, right? Yeah. Muse. And um, and so I, they asked me to come in for that and I scored that. And that's what really started to snowball, where I then did a few other documentaries for Showtime. And the head of Showtime, David Nevins, his wife had a documentary about another football player that I did. And and um, that was really the thing that really started it. And, and I was actually doing things really simultaneously. I was on tour and scoring these documentaries. I, I'd scored probably maybe three documentaries while I was also on tour with Marcus. Did you have a Pro Tools rig in your hotel room so you would come off the the road or finish a date and write a cue yeah i mean my, everybody that i toured with would like talk about how i just never slept because i would Ooh. we would yeah come from a show i would go to my hotel room and between you know the four hours before we had to get back on the bus i would be writing cues what, in my room what's yeah. the most bizarre place you've written a cue in, in the back of my car yeah ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. definitely like broken out you know in, the, in between meetings i I still had some cues to get done, and so I just started writing some stuff in the back of my car. Hey, Everything's a desk with a laptop. Yeah. yeah. And um, listen, it, that's greatness. It really is. And it's – I remember – I read – I think I might want be one of the few people who read, like, an Elvin Jones biography. Whoa, Elvin Jones, that's awesome. The, wow. The um, – Drummer and the great Coltrane. Point that mic up a little more to your face Great there. Coltrane, there McCoy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, Quartet played my favorite things and made all those great records. And Elvin said they would finish playing two or three sets at the Vanguard. Mm -hmm. Everybody's packing up and going home. And Train would be in the dressing room practicing scales wow. at 2 a.m. That's why John Coltrane 
is who he is. He didn't stop. The same thing we just heard about Pharrell and Kanye. He would be in there playing modal scales and playing funny Egyptian scales and whatever it was. And uh, I just love hearing that because I, the clock is ticking for all of us. And yeah. there's a feeling of like, if you don't do it now, when are you going to learn this stuff? Yeah. So hearing that you're in the back of a car writing a cue, that's fantastic. Probably I mean, probably pretty cool to score a film about Kobe growing up in L.A. Right on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. So he is from Lower Marion. Yeah, PA. that's true. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, <laughs> disclaimer. I'm just saying. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Get that in there. I, uh, yeah, my, my dad was a huge Laker fan because my dad grew up here as well. And so I grew up being a Laker fan and, and uh, obviously, like, learned – my love for basketball through Kobe's career. Boom, yeah. boom, 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 <laughs> boom, boom. We know that Kobe is now a filmmaker and, yeah. and connected with John Williams. Have yeah. you, did you get a chance to meet Kobe? Oh yeah, yeah, we yeah we talk all the time and like we uh, worked pretty closely together on that oh, project. That's and so cool. Yeah, it's pretty. I've been. We just did a um, uh, actually a score for uh, an audiobook series that he just released. I wrote the score to him. We're about to do another one, and he's really ever actually since that 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 documentary. He's really made the whole team from that documentary a core team for his studio. Like the guy that you know, it was a producer that brought me in, Jake Block, is now pretty much his you know, like right-hand person when, with all these projects. And he's been at, having me score everything except for the John Williams short film. But, of course, if I'm going to give it up to anybody, <laughs> yeah. it have to be John Williams. I don't know, Kobe. We got to talk, man. It's me or John Williams. Can I can I come over and can we have a little conversation? <laughs> talk about somebody that, does, that has that same never-satisfied drive, though, Kobe. Exactly. I think I, I, it reinvigorated that in me for uh working with him because i because i definitely have always had that um and i think going to college i got to a point where i realized that i had been working harder than most of the people that i was in school with and so i got to college and i was like oh wow like i you know maybe i should uh hang out a little bit and chill and like actually have more of a life and like have girlfriends or go out and party and like oh, that, that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah and i, I uh, do understand why you said when we came in you're working all the time because one of the most beautiful things that you're saying is anybody you work for, they want to have you come back and do something else. The greatest gift you can get of doing any project, I always felt, was people like each other at the end and want to work together again. Because, you know, some people work on things and it's like, thanks for playing, see you later. Yeah. So yeah, they, yeah. they want to bring you back. The hard part is you end up with these wonderful relationships, clearly. And how do you say no? Kobe says, hey, man, what are you doing? Well, if you answered honestly, you're doing 16 things. Yeah. But you say, mm, what do you have in mind? Yeah. I'm free. <laughs> Whatever you need. How do you not say that? But you end up, can you clone yourself? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I mean, we're, <laughs> yeah. It's only you in this room. I must tell our dear listeners, sometimes we go see a composer and there are 62 people outside the door doing stuff. Chris is here by himself, clearly doing everything. Yeah, I mean, I do have people that help me. I mean, I have um, I have two assistants now that I just brought on. One is really just admin and stuff like that, and another one um, started to like help with some of the TV shows and things like that. But, but yeah, with most of my projects, it's just been so hard to to delegate any of that, just because you know, especially as a player, I think that I'm I have so so strong of a connection to every aspect of the music that's coming out, whether it's the melody or the harmonic progression or whatever is happening, that if for a second I feel like that doesn't feel like me, it's really difficult to um to let go of that. And I think that that's the thing that I've been trying to figure out in this last like six month period as these things have been coming and and more projects have been 
loading on is how to um, how to delegate, but also probably how to say no more, how to say no to things that that um, that maybe aren't um, that exciting to me or, or to, you know, check my gut a little bit more, I think, because working with some of these people that are return um, uh, collaborators like Kobe or like Justin, those people. I just love everything that they're doing. And so I want to make sure that I am as free as possible. And I think that this, this last six months, there were projects that I was doing that were some random little thing that I said yes to, because I thought it might be a cool thing or, um, you know, other projects that maybe in my gut, I was like, I don't really think this is right, but I decided to do it anyways. And I felt how much of my, my person was being split and how much, you know, if Kobe calls me now, I now I'm, stressed about whether or not the stuff I'm giving him is as good as it should be because of like some random little like commercial that I said I would score. Well, you know? we all so, know yeah. every project starts off as, Oh, it's just a little thing. Yeah. And then it lasts for six months exactly. and they're like, hey, can you tweak? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How many projects did you have? You, you mentioned you had a lot of stuff going on in like the last six months to a year. Can you give us an example of like how many different projects you were juggling? Yeah. So I just came out of a period where I was working on, um, uh, the audiobook series for Kobe season three of dear white people, season two of for the people season one of black Monday, a mini series with Ava DuVernay, uh, a video game and, and then some like random little things where I would just like write an arrangement for somebody. We might want to edit this portion out. Yeah, so man. every one of those creators doesn't say, Hey, wait a minute, Chris, are you giving <laughs> cool music to Ava? When you're I mean, I've been in that situation where it was always very delicate about telling one director that a composer that he has hired, I know for a fact is doing other things. Of course, Composers are incredibly capable of doing that. But you mentioned something else that's really interesting and key, which is the relationships you develop as a composer with a director or a producer. In many ways, and if they're good and productive, that's gold. I mean, I just look. I look at Hans with Ridley Scott or mm -hmm. Chris Nolan yep, yep. or Jim Brooks. Those relationships not only sustain his career, but they get better and more developed and the work gets better. I once had an experience with Danny Elfman and Tim Burton hmm. on a, the bad version of Planet and the Apes. I hesitate to say that because it got better about four years later with like Rise of the Apes or whatever that was. It was the one with Marky Mark and some others that Tim directed. They had such an incredible way of speaking to each other that they didn't speak to each other. There was one cue where Danny goes, you know, the band plays and the band plays and the band plays and it's a fantastic piece of music. And I'm sitting between Danny and Tim at a console. Incredible cue. Just mm. kills it. I kind of look at both of them. Isn't that great? And Danny leans across me and says to Tim, I know, I know, I'll fix it. <laughs> and I thought, fix what? And, and Tim didn't say anything. Huh. Like, are I they thought, texting each other? I thought, no, man. They are so <laughs> locked. They have done so many movies together that something had happened during the queue that Danny knew Tim wouldn't like. Yeah. Or didn't want. Yeah. Or had said, whatever you do. And Dan, they didn't have to say anything. Danny leaned over the orchestrator, da, 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 changed. But that kind of, look, they just did Dumbo. Yeah. You know, that was 20 years ago. So I love hearing that. Kobe, Justin, maybe Pete Farrelly. Hey, yeah. when we come back, should we take a minute here to Yeah, we'll catch take a break. break. 
I want to ask you about my good friend Pete Farrelly, who yeah, I did definitely. lots of movies with. Yeah, for sure. Talk about Green Book and how you taught Mahershala Ali how to play the piano. Yeah. <laughs> Much more with uh, Chris Bowers when we return. Stick around. Hey, SCORE fans, it's Kenny. Now that Season 2 is going strong, you can look good while you're listening. We just released the official SCORE the Podcast t-shirt. There's multiple colors and sizes for men, women, and children. And they're super soft. I just got a few myself. They fit really nice, and they feel great, and they look cool. Uh, So go to score-movie.com slash store. Check those out, and you can also get a copy of SCORE, a film music documentary on Blu-ray, and our uh, interview bonus disc that has the extended interviews from the film. So plenty to check out, score-movie.com slash store, and get your shirt today. Welcome back to Heroes and Misfits Studios. I had to tone it down when I came back up with this music. It's emotional for me to hear this. (laughs) So beautiful. The Dear Dolores Q from Green Book. We're here with Chris Bowers. What a movie. And on Green Book, I mean all of your all of your skills were employed. Mm. And um, you were not only the composer, which would have been in itself, full-time gig. I'm just going to write the music for the Oscar-winning movie of this year. <laughs> I'm good. Mm, how about you're going to go learn all of Don Shirley's piano pieces, transcribe them. Yeah. I read about it. Yeah. And then teach the actor. So you were the music supervisor, the music producer, and the composer. Certainly, I'd like to talk to your, your manager and your agent make sure you were compensated fully for each one of those gigs. Because they sometimes say, oh, he'll just do everything, man. It's cool. So we can off camera. Robert Kraft Esquire. Yes. We can uh, do that. But what a huge accomplishment, a lifetime accomplishment to do that movie. Best and, picture. Uh, what it's, a night. It's curious. I can tell you, I wanted to ask you about how Pete Farrelly and you were united because I did many, many Farrelly Brothers movies at oh, Fox. Wow. And Probably. there was one thing that was consistent about all of them. Something about Mary, me, myself, and Irene, shallow hell. There was never a composer. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Pete Farrelly and Bobby Farrelly did not want composers. They wanted song scores. For sure. So we put lots of Steely Dance songs and Phoenix and everybody else. And it was really a great kind of exercise in needle drops. Mm. No composer mm. ever. Well, you know, I remember once Pete said, you think he'd get John Williams to do this? You know, it was on... Shallow Hell or something like that. <laughs> I think he's doing like Star Wars and then doing Jurassic 3, but maybe in between that. Um, but here, uh, the irony of ironies, Pete Farrelly ends up with a movie that wins the award with a score that's magnificent. How does Pete Farrelly end up with you as the composer of record on his the movie he directs solo. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, well, it actually came from the the actual music supervisors on the on the project, Tom Wolf and Manish Revolve, who were music supervisors on every single Farrelly Brothers. Movie. Yeah, and they're incredible. They um, fantastic. Yeah, they uh, they were part. They and my agent were pitching me for it, and um, you know they were trying to find somebody that could that could take on all these roles. And um, Pete Fairley, I think, I hope, jokingly says that he he Googled best pianist in the world, and, and that's how he found me. Oh, and love that. he love uh, That's he, the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty hilarious. <laughs> but he, um, but yeah, so that was a big part of the, 
the requirement, I think. And um, so the first time they reached out to me, uh, my first meeting, which I usually go into the first meeting expecting it to be a um, – you know, a, a moment for them to size me up and see if I'm, I'm, of you know, will or able or uh, capable of doing this project. Especially, this is my first studio film, and being responsible for that much is a uh, is a tall order. And um, that first meeting, they were kind of just like, "Yeah, so what do you think about the script? Are you down to do it? Are you available? <laughs> what could be better?" So yeah. you had read the script and you knew about Don Shirley, so yeah. you could be. Yeah, that was some my meetings. You come in and they say. We'd like to tell you about our movie, and you know nothing. This yeah, one, they give you a little. Yeah, they gave me a script, info. and um, but that was my first time reading the script. Was my first time hearing about Don Shirley, and um, I still actually didn't really know anything about his music. I finished the script right before the meeting, and I went to the meeting, and and um, really investigated his music after after they had really offered it to me, and that's when that really kind of um, yeah shattered my 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 world a little bit. Hearing his music and hearing what what an amazing and unique. Uh, talent he was yeah. it's actually interesting because there could be a case made that don shirley sat in a place that isn't entirely far from you playing kind of in the pop world yeah. and kind of in the classic yeah it's kind of made also for you performing mm-hmm. as well so and, and recording so uh there must have been some simpatico feeling of i'm going to take on this artist one of the things that's amazing about the movie and i watched I you know, had to rewatch it, of course, before I saw you. Is I am such a stickler for seeing music on camera that looks authentic. You know, mm-hmm. There is nothing worse to me than they cut to the drummer and you hear, and the drummer's playing a ride cymbal, <laughs> yeah. and a tom-tom, and he's nowhere near in time. And you say, isn't there a music editor anywhere on the planet that can see this the way I can sitting in an audience? Yeah, yeah. The incredible granular attention to detail mm-hmm. on Mahershala's mm-hmm. hands mm-hmm. is just how what, did he did he practice that much and was the piano I wondered last night was the piano silenced was the like keyboard you know you take it so that he, it's, he's playing the actual piano keyboard but the strings have either been muffled because it's he's really digging in yeah how yeah, yeah. <laughs> well one one it, I you know a decent percentage of that is me playing so like there's yeah oh there's, of course it's you yeah, playing right, now that's the thing yeah of course it's your sound that's why I wondered he is now does he have an earwig in and he's trying to play no, exactly even, the thing even even the hand so what they did is they actually did um a head replacement so it's it's actually my body oh, and, oh. and they, they put, yeah you just figure something out <laughs> for me thank you because there's a really slow pan up from the hand yep. All the way slowly up, and it's him. And I thought, yes, most directors would get out of that shot fast exactly. before you could figure it out. But they really go with the hands and the body and all that. And then, you know, sometimes I would like a head replacement. I wonder how <laughs> I can do that. Um, how did that movie not win Best Visual Effects? Yeah, then? No, that's right? a secret yeah, exactly. visual effect. Right yeah, there. it was pretty amazing that they did that. There's so many visual effects that aren't even seen that are pretty seamless. But um, and it was it that was such a big thing for Pete, like that. That first shot was he. That's all he talked about. Even from that first meeting, he was like, "I know the first time we see him play, because of that reason, I don't want it to be a cut of the hands and then a cut of the face. It needs to be one fluid shot where we can see that whole solves it. I'll never tell, though we will be on the World Wide Web with this information. (laughs) However, when you said it was me playing, just out of curiosity, production wise, is that take? actually you playing or are you playing to playback that moment too i'm playing to playback yeah, yeah. That, so I, I recorded all the stuff about 
three weeks before we started shooting. Sure. And then, um, and then we're playing to my, my re-records. But the, um, um, as far as how it worked with Mahershala, I, I spent about three months with him, uh, teaching him piano and like at first just the basics of piano and then teaching him some of the Don Shirley, the simpler moments of the Don Shirley stuff. So there are moments in the film where you see, especially like songs like, um, uh, like Happy Talk, for example, or like the beginning of Blue Skies or something like that. Those are all things that, he was able to pick up pretty quickly um and it's really amazing to see that first lesson we did he spent three hours playing a c major scale and talk about somebody that's like you know focused on trying to get better like we were talking about earlier he's somebody who he would play a scale over and over and over and over again and i would have to i could tell him oh you know what let's let's move on to something else and he would just keep playing he wouldn't even hear me i would have to physically like tap him to get him to stop playing and um because he had that much diligence that by by month three, we were able to start looking at some of the simpler parts of the, some of the Don Shirley songs and things like that. But with him, it was it was um, uh, about even just like the way he sat down at the piano, just like you said, wanting to make sure that people weren't taken out of it because they could see that he was a pianist just by the way he carried himself. And he had no music. no piano experience whatsoever. I, I think he had a little more than he told me. He he said uh, he's told me to approach him like he was a beginner, like he had never played before. I know that his character on on Luke Cage played a little bit of keyboard, and his wife is an incredible musician. Um, and so uh, and he's he had a, a rap career himself, so I, I know that mm-hmm. he is a musician. Um, but as far as actual piano, he said that he was a complete beginner, did, and we were starting from the beginning. Did you know that this was part of the gig when you came on, or did they say, "Hey, by the way, do you want to spend three months with the one of the stars of the film?" Yeah, that part I didn't know. They told me that I had to re-record the stuff, but as far as helping rehearsal, I think that was something that organically came. Where they're like, "Oh, well, I mean, you're playing this stuff; you might as well be the guy that teaches them." And and yeah, I was already such a huge fan of his from Moonlight and and House yeah. of Cards. It's a hell and, of a teacher to get. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I was I was I was the one that felt pretty pretty lucky. Do you think he's is he sticking with it? Have you talked to him? Like, does he still want to? Does he want to play now? Does he want to jam? Because he, yeah. he got a pretty good, uh, you know, deep dive into learning how to play. Yeah, I think he still does actually practice. We haven't talked about it. So I haven't asked him if he's been uh, keeping up with it. But um, but I know that it was something that he really cared about. I mean, we. Whenever we would meet up again, he was just like, man, I'm sorry, I've been traveling and I didn't have a chance to like practice this, this and this, but I practiced this and I'm a little bit better at that. Like he took it very He's seriously. apologizing. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like most of my students that I've had in the past didn't even take it that seriously. Did you do your pre-records on a Steinway? I did. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I was just thinking that it's such Steinway a big part. Steinway only. Yeah. It's such a big part of the picture that I thought, man, if you did it on another, you know. I know. Right? And also I'm a Steinway artist. So I, I, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. I myself have the same, the same thing where I, Where would you record? For this one, we actually recorded um, all of the pre-records at the bridge, um, Mm. which unfortunately isn't isn't around anymore. But the um, yeah, all the pre-records we did there, and then the score we did at Warner Brothers. Nice. And would the director come to the pre-records or just let you rock away? He actually didn't. He came to. I th- we did some more pre-records at the Esplanade Studios in in New Orleans because uh, that's where they were shooting, and so all the the bar scene stuff that happened, like the blue stuff and then the Chopin and right. all of that, we did down there. Nice. And um, and I know that uh, Jim Burke and a couple of the other producers and Tom and Manish, the music supervisors, came to that session, but I can't remember if Pete was there or not. I feel like Pete really. I was incredibly surprised with the amount of autonomy and trust that I had on this project. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's so, I've seen both sides. It makes me wonder whether you get from the experience of being on the set Mm -hmm. and being part of it, 
any interest in making films yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've I've been interested in that for a while. Like, I actually because I, I was going to say you, you went through this all these steps that you, with your parents, the four step thing. It ended at film scoring, <laughs> but I don't know why I have this kind of feeling that. It doesn't end there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have this uh, this short film that I, that I've been trying to make for for a while. That I actually I shot myself. I directed and wrote it, and and then ended up with something that that uh, that showed me I didn't know how to direct. And and um, yeah, who did you get to score it? <laughs> uh, yeah, some guy that didn't really know anything about music. <laughs> no. uh, but the but it's something that I'm still working on because the plan is to um, as I start to go back into my artist career and, and release music as as a performing artist. Um, having some sort of visual component is is incredibly important to me, and so trying to figure out how to rework this short film that I have to uh, to fit with with music or to have some sort of um, maybe different storyline than I had originally planned. But but um, but yeah, but that's something I'm working on at the moment that um, that ties into that. But yeah, doing stuff more in uh, on the other side of, of filmmaking and things in like tech or something else that I'm, I'm starting to explore. So yeah, there definitely are a lot of things. Cause you have a lot of free time. Too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Can you anything. tell me and our listeners a little more about what to look forward to in your artist career? Certainly film scoring. There's, a full plate, but what what's coming up? Records coming out? Yeah, so I'm working. I've been working with a lot of different artists, like songwriting things like that. But um, I'm working on my own uh, project right now. So probably sometime this year, I'll be releasing some new music. And then are um, you still on the label that you were on with the Felonious? No, Monk actually, no. We've been trying to find another place just that um, is going to fit a bit more with like the experimental things that sure. we're thinking of doing because. Again, a lot of the the albums that I want to release, I want to have a very strong visual component and have it be more like a short film that has a score as opposed to um, uh, as opposed to an album that I then go out and tour and things like that. But also, I'm working on a, a project right now with a chef where we're going to do a um, a 12 course meal and have have it in a space where we could have it for about 20 or 30 people, and on one side have a live chamber ensemble, and on the other side have an open kitchen. And then the idea with that is exploring. Just multi-modal uh, sensory um, uh, wow. experimentation. How do I get in Is on that? selling tickets now? <laughs> yeah. That sounds great. You could do that. I'm going to, you know, once a month at some fabulous place in L.A., it would sell out instantly. Yeah, I think it could be a really incredible experience, especially the more I've been researching how much, you know, we talked about synesthesia earlier, but how much people don't even realize how that's just a natural thing that humans have. I mean, you know, when you smell something and you remember your grandma, like that's kind of synesthesia or if you taste something and, and feel something. And so I think that it's, um, I'm just really fascinated by what, how something can taste slightly different with certain music behind it. Well, and, and for listeners that don't, synesthesia, can you explain it? Yeah, so synesthesia, I guess, is just when you have two um, senses that are intrinsically tied. So if you see color and hear sound, or vice versa, you hear sound and you see a color, or uh, you taste something and see a color. It's just whenever you have these things that that are always mm -hmm. tied together. Um, and uh, I feel like a lot of artists probably have some i think it's a spectrum and a lot of artists are somewhere on that spectrum because there's so many artists that are also incredibly visual or like are incredibly stimulated by by um touch or something else and i think that um you know we're also in a place where media is being created that has all these different things that are stimulating you you know like something like sleep no more is a dance but it's also an immersive theater production and so i think that I saw uh, it and it crushed me i've never seen it actually oh, oh, incredible 
Yeah, it's really like, incredible. You you know you are living it. Yeah, and I think that the more that people are experiencing these things, the the cooler it is as artists to be able to figure out how to put different disciplines together and and see what what happens. With well, that. I just read recently that Lior Cohen, the head of YouTube, mm. said that we used to be in an era of audio for visual, mm. but now we are in an era of visual for audio. For in sure. other words, you have music and you're putting the, the picture is coming on top as a key component um well and look at just podcasting in the short period of time how how much is it it's exploded and yeah. immersive and people are just headphones in their ears everywhere and and on the go on the go and so it's like there's movies for your ears now instead of you know just watching it on screens you yeah. might have explained something to me which i've always discounted when i was doing music for picture a lot of directors had no idea how to express something they didn't like. Mm. One of my favorites was, particularly as you can imagine why I would find this a favorite, a director said about one cue, can the composer give it a little more hair? And I thought, <laughs> um, and he was looking at me when he said that. I thought, yeah, kind of. But once a composer, a director said to me, it needs to be more, I don't know, yellow <laughs> yeah <laughs> and for some maybe he had synesthesia it never yeah. occurred to me till this conversation i thought you know where on the chart do you add <laughs> you know i see rubato <laughs> make it more yellow and I, of course i would always have to say let me see what i can do and i'd walk either onto the stage or pull the composer aside and say this guy's out of his mind that's <laughs> classic um, music theory yellow I'm you know <laughs> you're making it more yellow <laughs> So I'd, and, uh, you know, a composer would, like, roll his eyes like, oh, man, how do I get out of here? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many thousands of those did we go through? But I'd say, I think this you'll like this next one. It's a little more yellow. And you play it, and the guy say, yeah, that's it, whatever it was. <laughs> but maybe it never occurred to me. He might have been synesthetic. Yeah, yeah. Is that the word? Yeah, it, it could, I'm so. going to go with synesthetic. Yeah, I think so, Chris, um, you have a new project releasing this week yeah when they see us yeah um can you talk a little bit about how you got on board how did you get on board with this project with ava uh, incredible director yeah um and this is a, a very serious I and mean, if you've seen the trailer it's this is a very serious subject and a, a different style of project than you've done in the past yeah for sure yeah uh well i i got the project really because of um a mentor of mine named jason moran and jason moran is one of my favorite pianist and um an incredible player yeah yeah and uh and he has been one of ava's collaborators for uh, i think since the beginning he yeah. scored selma he yep. scored the 13th um he didn't do wrinkle in time but i think that has more to do with the, the fact that it was a huge studio film than yep. anything else and so he was originally on this project and um i think just because of his touring schedule he just couldn't he couldn't um he couldn't stay on it and so uh she asked for recommendations and he recommended me in the first meeting we had together, Ava and I, she was still considering other composers, and and uh, we just had a conversation about um, about my approach, about you know why something like this or this subject matter might be something that I'd be interested in working on. And then she showed me the first episode, and then we talked again afterwards. And actually, I I I got emotional after the after watching the first episode. I actually went back and and um and as soon as I started talking to her, I found myself like tearing up <laughs> talking to her about it just because I felt uh, the story 
so close so close to home um you know i I myself actually ended up uh arrested for for protesting and 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 saw firsthand a little bit i mean you know getting arrested for protesting is like a field trip to jail but but they did put us in a cell block and we were there for 24 hours and and it was such an eye-opening experience and even going through that uh with such a um uh, a silly charge but watching these young boys get arrested for something it really reminded me how 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 easily that could have been me how easily like somebody could have mistaken me for being somewhere i wasn't and then my whole life would have been completely different and um uh yeah so that that was kind of our first conversation and i think just a combination of jason's recommendation and and her of course hearing my other music in other places but maybe even specifically how much the the show really impacted me from the beginning i think made it so that she trusted me with it what was your experience like working with her uh, it was really incredible. I mean, she's so she has a really unique balance of being incredibly tough, but also very uh, giving me a lot of autonomy and freedom as well. Like she doesn't really she isn't very prescri- prescriptive when it comes to specifically what she needs some uh, from a cue. Uh, if, if there's something I write a lot of times, she's like. Yeah, I think it's great. Maybe, you know, this this thing I don't really feel as much as I did before, you know, in this moment where where his mom hugs him or something like that and we can amp that up or something like that, but she wouldn't tell me how to do it. She would just be like, "Yeah, I, you know, that's something that I I used to feel when I watch it so much and with this cue I don't feel it so much anymore. So if we can just take a look at that section and then leave it up to me to figure out how to make those adjustments and um the toughest thing was just our schedule. We just didn't really have very much time and the way she wanted to approach each of these episodes like they were films. And each episode is uh, at least an hour long. The last one's an hour and a half and each one has about 50 minutes of music. The last one has like um <laughs> Almost an hour of music. Wow. And so, what an assignment. Yeah, it was definitely a, a, a lot of pressure. But but um, again, she just was so encouraging throughout all of it that it was Recorded it was here in L.A.? Yeah, we recorded um, uh, just some, just a few musicians like in MySpace and things yeah. like that and like layered it on top of a lot of the sounds that we created. Like a lot of the sounds in the score. The score almost sounds more like a horror film than anything. I, you know what? I was going to say that when we same. heard the cues. Huh? I, I Before I knew anything I heard the music. Hmm. You, you shared a little bit of it with us. I didn't know what the subject was because mm-hmm. I didn't put together because I knew Avid was making this. Yeah, and I didn't put together that. Was I mean, the listen title. to this. I yeah. thought the title of this. This is the bad guy creeping up the stairs. <laughs> yeah, and I thought. Is Avid's next picture like in the Jordan Peele zone? Yeah, uh, yeah. Kind of. When they see. Us yes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I thought the name of the project was—I just got that when they see us was, <laughs> was Central the Central Park Five. Yeah. So re- I thought, what is when they see us? Ava's making another thing, and it must be a horror film. Yeah. No. Yeah. When when she f- it was first called the Central Park Five, but I think at first, and she speaks to this much better, much more eloquently. But originally, I think she wanted to change the title because she felt like that title can't be associated with these boys and these men anymore because we shouldn't be calling them the central park five because that that alludes to um to what the crime that they were they were um uh erroneously yeah accused of accused of and um and so they came up she and netflix ended up coming up with this title when they see us and uh it really just about when when they are in this situation when these cops or when these these um these 
you know, people in authoritative positions see these young black boys, what are they thinking? What, what comes to mind or what makes them make these decisions to, to, um, to wrongfully accuse them or to coerce them into giving these statements. And so, um, yeah, it, as far as it sounding like a horror film, when I first watched it that first time, I felt that way. I felt like it is know, a horror film in a certain way. It yeah. is a monster of the authorities and a certain approach and assumption and, uh, but they they picked the wrong monster, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. And and it's it's uh it's really tough to watch just because you know you have these these boys who ended up being in jail for years and years, years. and years and got out as as men going in at like fifteen, sixteen, fourteen years old for one of them and coming out at thirty years old. Um, their their lives were completely changed, you know. And and uh, yeah, it was pretty. Well, the the trailer is powerful enough, um, but yeah. the series drops this week on Netflix. Yeah. Um, is it sequential, or do you, can you download all four at once? Do you know? You can get all four at once. Netflix, like Netflix doesn't yeah. do sequential, I don't think, right? Yeah, it's all it's bingeable. All, they binge that's so their good. thing. That's their thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll be sure to check that out. And um, Ava gets huge props for tackling a number of topics that yeah. just need to be done, and um, I can't wait. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. She basically is just showing how the you know incarceration system works through the lens of this story just showing how you know how you can have police that wrongfully convict or or coerce somebody and how how difficult it is as a as a convicted felon to try to assimilate back into the real world and what what the difficulties are there and and specifically for one boy who ended up going straight to federal prison as a 16 year old like what that experience is like for for a young man and so she really is just kind of unearthing the the way our prison system works but through the lens of this this story i also want to give a shout out a couple things first of all chris mentioned the way that ava uh responded to a cue that she thought could be different or better and it's the what you will pray for as a director saying i don't know i felt something else last time if you could just fix that as opposed to what sound is that yeah is that a is that a what are those instruments called she let the composer do it, and that's the mark of a great director. I think For sure. was when you hire somebody and you let them be a professional in their field. And I've seen a couple do it: Ang Lee, Ridley Scott. They turn to the composer and say, "You know, I wish it was a little more this and a little more that. Um, let's move on." And the composer says, "Okay, I know how to do that, and let me fix it." But it's not this kind of incredible. I'm going to get in your face about how to do it. The other thing I'd like to do is give a shout out to Chris's parents because clearly they had some instinct about the potential of this unborn human. (laughs) And and clearly here you have to, you know, what's your father did? He's going to learn about jazz or he's going to learn. That's incredible. Put a piano in front of you. That's a wonderful story of investment, love support from a parent and it's also surprising to me that you didn't rebel in other words some kids would say at 14 i'm gonna go play ball i'm gonna go into engineering i don't want to do this and you stayed true to it and look what happened so thank you i mean we've we've heard we've heard of the headphones on the on the stomach but yeah. like this goes way beyond that (laughs) yeah yeah and i think the fact that i stuck with it has even more uh you know to do with them and the way that they did it, you know, for them to have this balance of, again, pressure, but support. And the fact that I never felt like I never felt like they were making me do it. It felt like they, they were really incredibly supportive and passionate about, about my passion. I wonder if when you God willing, and certainly 
have a child about to be born, mm-hmm. I wonder if you start saying, I want you to learn how to code. Because <laughs> <laughs> exactly. this will make you the head of Google <laughs> exactly. years from, instead of this world-class <laughs> composer, which they ended up. If you could learn like coding yep. and uh, search engine optimization <laughs> yeah. right now. Holds, like, I don't know what you would hold up to your stomach, like a laptop, an yeah. iPad. You know? yeah. Battery cars, Tesla. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, Chris, anything else? I know you mentioned the audiobook coming up with Kobe. Is there a release date on that or anything that yeah, you can talk about? That's actually out. Yeah, it's called the Wizenard series. Oh, it's out. Okay. Yeah, that's out. It's um, narrated by Felicia Rashad. Mm. Yeah, and um, yeah, that's pretty exciting. We're doing another one that should come out probably later this year called Legacy, and um, and then uh, yeah, other than I, I just did the Madden uh, twenty twenty video game score, and we're um, oh nice, yeah, we actually might be releasing it as a soundtrack, and um, and wow, that's yeah, cool. pretty excited about that one too. Very cool. Well, Chris Bowers, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for I coming on the show. We've learned that if there's a choice, we have a hero here, not a misfit. <laughs> I think they're one and the same. Actually. <laughs> it might be, maybe. To be a true hero, you have to understand what it's like to be a misfit to get the truly heroic status. For sure. For sure. Well, again, we want to thank Chris Bowers for coming on the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Score the Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Take it away, Robert. 